so much choir for ushering us into divine presence. Would you join me this afternoon in the Song of Solomon chapter 4? And I merely want to read three verses, verse 1, verse 7, and verse 16. Verse 1, verse 7, and verse 16 of the Song of Solomon chapter 4. Verse 1, Clause A, verse 7, and then verse 16. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1, Clause A. You are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. Verse 16, awake north wind, rise up south wind, blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love, taste its finest fruits. Amen. You may be seated. I cannot take credit for the title to which I've given this lesson of Song of Solomon chapter 4, So Beautiful. It doesn't originate with me. It comes from that R&B lyricist poet, music soul child who gave us in 2008 a track entitled So Beautiful as he provides for us not a descriptive picture as the Song of Solomon does here in this fourth chapter but he highlights the central theme of his expression of the woman to whom he writes, simply telling her how beautiful she is and how incredibly desirable she is unto him and even how he absolutely cannot live outside of her presence. I want you to listen very closely to the lyrics of this track. And for those of you who are ultra conservative and you've never heard R&B music in the sanctuary, it'll be all right. You won't go to hell. Hell won't rain down fire. Uh, you won't lose any brownie points in heaven. Trust me, the objective is for you to listen in a contemporary sense, secular, how even those who may not be as we consider to be sacred yet has sacred things to say about sacred entities. Hit that track for me, Steve. Listen closely. And listen to the exhortation of the word beautiful repeatedly in the song. You're my baby 
Listen close to the chorus as he closes out the song. He lifts up a single line. Baby, don't you know you're so beautiful. You're so beautiful. You're so beautiful. It's the same line that Solomon lifts in verse 1 of this fourth chapter. Listen to what he says. He says, you are so beautiful, my darling. But look at the next line beautiful beyond words and then he says in verse 7 
you are all together beautiful, beautiful, my darling, in every way. See, between verse 1 and verse 7, there's a progression of her beauty, and the only way you can see that is to read through the details that he gives us in verses 1 through 6. He gives us intimate details about how beautiful she is, just like Music Soul Child tells us of this woman that he's writing of who is so beautiful that when she is not in his presence, she's always running through his mind. There, there's something about knowing that you're in love with someone that when you're not in their presence, they are consistently on your mind, constantly being on your mind. Translation, even when you're not thinking about God because you are in so love with God that God should always constantly be on your mind. When you start reflecting on how good God is, how gracious God is, how forgiving God is, how loving God is, how caring God is, how securing God is, and how God continuously where you are, he's always on your mind. And that's all the song is trying to tell us, nothing more, nothing less. When you think about the person to whom you're in love with, there is an elevation of beauty that we should be able to identify in the story. In these eight different scenes, that's all it is, eight different scenes, we call it eight chapters, but it's nothing more than eight different scenes in this poetic poem that the Solomon is writing about in reference to the Shulamite woman to whom he is now about to marry in chapter 4. And verse 16 is an invitation to consummate the marriage because he is overwhelmed not just with the beauty, but there are other characteristics about this woman that drives him. And when you look at chapter 1, 2, and 3, and chapter 1, what he does is he brings a fresh revelation to a woman who had a negative perspective about who she was and about how she looked because of the darkness of her skin and the kinkiness of her hair, he sort of rechanged her mind and told her no matter how you see yourself, no matter what your physical anatomy suggests, you are beautiful in spite of all that you think you are not. He reoriented her mind by giving her a new revelation about who she was. In chapter 2, he simply comes about and helps her recognize that she is, of course, to be respected. Remember in chapter 1, she had brothers who did not respect her and the community had little respect of her because of what she did by way of occupation. But what did he do? He came into her life and showed her that no matter where you are, what job you hold, what status you are, you are to be respected because you are a human being created in the image of God. And to show her how much he respected her, even though she may have been of a different social status in terms of her class in society, he being a king invited her into his space to let her know that I don't care where you come from, I see something more than what's present on the outside of you. He dig deep to find out what was going on 
in the inside of her. Chapter three, he brings her redemption. He redeems her in a dream to which she's having and she feels as if the love of her life have lost, has disappeared, she's lost it, only to see that he is coming up out of the valley in the chariot of top class to let her know that I'm coming back to redeem you, to rescue you from a dream that looked like it was a failure. In other words, he was trying to tell us sometimes, even in the midst of your dreams, it may look as if you shall never accomplish what the dream says. But if you keep looking, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And the king will come up out of the wilderness and bring about redemption for your life. And here we are in chapter four. Now he's bringing her to a place of reception where they're going to celebrate how beautiful the wedding moment can be. But before they get there in verse 16, he's going to point out how beautiful of a woman she is by detailing specifics in reference to her human anatomy. Follow me, if you will, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and 2. Follow me closely where he calls her beautiful and tells her that she is gorgeous beyond words. But I want to insert something. I want to insert something that I shared this morning from the late F. Scott Fitzgerald who shared with his wife Zelda in writing her a letter in which he said unto her something life-changing. He told her, you are the finest, the loveliest, the tenderest, and most beautiful person I have ever known, and even that is an understatement. I'm, I'm just trying to help you out, brothers. If you want to actually show enough score some points, come up with a rhyme like that. Come up, come up with an effort, but listen to the genuineness, I think, in the language of F. Scott Fitzgerald as he writes to his wife, he says, you are the finest. That meant that all that I have seen and all that I continue to see, you are a grade above. You are the finest and not only the finest, but you are the loveliest based upon what you've given me. Not only the loveliest, but the tenderest and the most beautiful person I have ever known. And even that statement, he says, is an understatement. In other words, she is waiting. She is waiting just as Solomon is trying to tell us in this chapter. In fact, he tells us throughout the book, he has three repeated things that you cannot avoid. One, he keeps on complimenting this Shunammite woman to let her know how beautiful she is over and over again. Number two, he keeps highlighting the particularities of her character, letting her know that she is more than her body. She has a brain and a personality and an emotion that he wants to tap into and he wants to help be able to see that this woman is more than her hips and her thighs and her breasts and her face but this woman is a human being who actually has something to contribute to my life and in order to do that he argues you've got to dig into the person to find out what their character is not just be complimentary, but not just the character, but then he celebrates her. 
He is going to repeatedly suggest that we have to celebrate the person that we are involved with both in their strengths and in their weaknesses because they are nothing more than God's projects under construction. And as God is working with them, God is bringing about the change in them. God is also helping us understanding through them that they are not only perfect, but we are not perfect as well. He matches us with imperfect people just to remind us that although our imperfections might be different, they are still imperfections. And God is working out in us not just our soul salvation, but God is also working out in us who we are. Thank goodness we ought to be able to say when we look back over our life and yesterday, we are not all that certainly we used to be. I should hope that we can say that we're not what we used to be, at least not all of it. But we are certainly not all that we are going to be because God is still working stuff out in me. I mean, let's just speak truth to reality. Every now and then we still get mad, we still cuss somebody out, we still think the wrong things in our mind. Don't try to act religious and pious with me. I know who you are behind closed doors. If I punch the wrong buttons, I ain't gotta hear it from your mouth. I can already see the wheels turning in your mind. We utilize language that we don't want anybody, and we go later and say, God forgive me. Graciously, we recognize that wasn't the right thing to do. But, but we are projects under construction. And maybe we would be more productive relationally if we stop trying to look for a perfect man or a perfect woman or someone who crosses all the T's and dots all the I's, but somebody who knows when they've made a failure but yet is still working out and still working at their life and they recognize when you fall and make a mistake, there's not a hand of condemnation, but there's a hand of commitment to lift us back up and to put us back on the trail. And so he tells us compliments. Compliments are extremely important to people. It can change their life. One compliment can change a person's entire day because they had no expectation nor were they even interested in someone saying something complimentary to them and when they hear that complimentary statement it can redirect their whole focus in mind in reference to their own attitude about themselves saying something good about somebody watch this I said earlier in the 8 o'clock worship service there were four things about this Fourth chapter, one, that the writer gives us descriptive pictures about who this Shunammite woman is. And we work through verse one through seven to find that out. Secondly, I told them uh, that the writer gives us 
the invitation to which he gave this woman and called her from dangerous spaces as we find in verse 8 where he calls her out from a place where the lions make their dens and the leopards roam in the mountains. He calls her out from these dangerous spaces and brings her into a space where her life is around the objects and the spirit of building and the spirit of encouragement. And then thirdly, he introduced us to her in reference to her delightful pleasure that he finds in her life and in her body. He begins to get more personal and more sexually oriented in terms of the sensuality of the text and sort of pushes us our boundaries in terms of church as to how we will talk about this sensitive issue of sexuality. And I argue as I did this morning, you might want to start having that conversation in church, particularly when you talk about young people, because if you don't, they will definitely find information about sex outside of church. And when they find it outside of church, it won't just be in a book in words. It will be also in descriptive pictures and they will be introduced to it live, full, and in color and the invitation to participate. And we got to understand, don't be judgmental, judgmental and critical when someone engages in sex and they end up pregnant then they come to church just like they were, which they ought to, even though they fell in, in a space where they shouldn't have, don't be condemning of them because they decide to come to church. This is the best place for them. This is the one place where they need the love of God and the expression of God. And we got to get off of our high, righteous, horse kind of seat and recognize we've all fallen short of the glory of God and there are none righteous, no, not one. But if you don't want them to make some major mistakes, educate them and you got to educate them in a space where you have your attention and because we got their attention in church you might as well tell them about what you want to tell them listen that day to which you and I came up when our parents told us and you know I'm right don't go out there and wallow in the ground with somebody that's that's old school these young folk don't know what that means what does wallowing in the ground mean they need specific, direct instructions. When they were telling us, don't you touch that girl. Don't you put your hands where it's not supposed to be. Don't you, don't you allow yourself to get in the position. You can't tell these young people that now and them hormones start rushing just like they did us. And in our minds, we can hear mama and daddy's voice, but notice it faded far and far and far and far and far and far and far because the human anatomy kicked in and the reality of life stood up and said to them I'm here now what you gonna do with me and here he is he's trying to tell us he's trying to tell us that compliments are critical because what they can also do is cause an individual not to compromise who they are, but instead to stand a strong ground. But look, look what he does. He is saying that if you are involved with the person to whom you love, if it's a husband and wife, learn to major in compliments. Look how detailed it is. Look what he says. Verse 1, 
verse 2, should I say, clause A. Maybe it's verse 1, clause A. Clause B. He says, your eyes, watch this, your eyes are like doves beyond your veil. Remember, in ancient, in ancient Eastern culture, a veil would constantly be over the woman's face so that you will not be able to see. Ah, if you go back to Genesis, here it is. People don't realize it, but if you read in the deep culture, you'll find out. You want to know why Jacob woke up and didn't realize that it wasn't Rachel he was married to, but Leah, it's because of the veil. See, he couldn't see beyond the veil. Now, when he woke up the next morning and pulled that veil back, he realized this ain't what I just worked for all these years. But ancient Eastern culture used the veil to hide the face that you, the pursuer, might want to pursue based on the mystery that's behind the veil. So here's a warning. I'm, I'm not going to finish this sermon. In fact, I'm just going to give you one or two more points. And I'm going to roll on because it, it's, it's too much. Here's a point. Sisters, uh, how about leave some things to the brother's mystery? Don't show him everything. Uh, there's a bishop in New York. He was interviewed by a radio station who basically condemned him because in his sermon, he was identifying Christian women now in the contemporary church. Now, don't judge him now. Listen to the context before you come to a conclusion because what happened was they took two snippets out of his sermon and condemned them, him for it instead of listening to the whole sermon that they might contextualize why those two snippets came to be what they were. Same thing they did at Jeremiah Wright. You remember that story, Jeremiah Wright made a single clip when he said, God damn America, not understanding if you had listened to the whole story, he was trying to make clear, continues in the realm of this racist behavior, God will damn America, but they didn't do that. They didn't listen to the whole sermon. So they didn't listen to his whole sermon. And in his sermon, in these two snippets, he did say that women now dress like whores and look like prostitutes. But they said that he called them whores and prostitutes. And that's not what he did. He said, in your dress, you look like women of the street instead of women in the sanctuary. And what he was saying was there should be a distinctive difference by way of identification between how a godly woman looks and how an ungodly woman looks. And he was arguing in the same context as this verse that there is nothing anymore left to the mystery of a, about a Christian woman. He, he didn't just talk about women. He talked about men as well, disrespectful, calling women the five-letter word and the B word and the F word, all these kind of other things and how their pants hang down even in church, et cetera, et cetera. But he said, sisters, why do we have to see your cleavage? I thought that was left as a mysterious expectation. Why do we have to see your curves? I thought that was left for the privacy of your own bedroom with the person to whom you love. Why do we have to see all of your assets without ever paying a cost? There's one R&B singer, and I won't, I won't quote her name, but before she married, she told her boyfriend, 
if you want this, you got to pay for it. And by that she means you get nothing unless you're willing to marry me. When you marry me, then you get all that I am. But until then, you get nothing. What was she doing? When you read Psalm, Psalm chapter 4, she was guarding and she locked up her paradise and told him, you're not entering to this space until you purchase this space by way of holy matrimony. But it was left to the mystery. Now the natural me would say, is she being realistic? Is she putting herself in a position where those expectations and those desires don't come to the forefront? I don't know. I don't know what she did. But all I do know is apparently he didn't get anything until he married her. And that might highly suggest that it is possible that you can live a life of chastity if you make a decision to do so. Here it is right here in the text. Maybe the compliments that she got from her father or from her mother reassured her of what kind of woman she was. But I know in this story, this man is trying to tell this woman how beautiful she is, but he's walking through the steps of being descriptive every dimension of her human anatomy. Watch this. He tells her how deep her eyes are behind the veil, mystery. But watch this, your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead, her majesty. She's not only a mysterious woman, but she's a woman that holds majestic presence. What he's doing is borrowing, remember we're reading poetry, Song of Solomon is poetry. So when you read it, it's metaphorical language. She is running down the slope and the wind is blowing her hair and it looks so majestic as if she's flying through the air. But he's saying unto her, in terms of your presence before me, when I look at your hair, I think of majesty. And in connection with my preacher from the Philadelphia area that was being interviewed by uh, the radio station, listen, he says in 1 Timothy, which is admonished there, that there ought to be a modest dressed among the women. But modest means cover up so when they see you, they wonder what beauty is housed behind all of that clothing. Now, that's not lust. That's not lust at all. In fact, when you think of this, even though you may have been married for 20 years, there still ought to be the anticipatory spirit of wondering about the person you're in love with, how they look in a very intimate, personal way. See, we don't talk about that in church because we think that's reserved for the bedroom and it just very well might be. But you know what I'm saying? You need some counseling and some help every now and then to make sure your eyes is focusing on the right thing and that your mentality is proper. That's the reason why we call women what we call them now because we've lost all respect for the human physical female anatomy. They're objects. That's what we call them, objects. When you call a woman a four-letter word, that's an object. I'm just trying to be nice because you, you know. When you call her the B word, you have reduced her humanity to a thing. And that's why we've lost respect. We did that. Men, 
by not only objectifying, but trying in a way to exploit. So now we have young women who are growing up thinking they're not pretty enough because their skin is too dark or their hair is too kinky or they are overweight because we've told them, here's how you need to look to be accepted in society. No regard for their internal being at all. In fact, no recognition of the fact that however kinky, dark, nappy, whatever it is, hair you got, that's yours. However dark your skin is, thank you, Indiari, I'm thinking about that, it's yours. Because, listen, you can bleach it all you want. Michael did it and it didn't work out very well. Keep who you are. Because you, who you are is who you is. And that's who you were meant to be. You can lose weight, but don't live to someone else's expectation. But look what he says to her. You look so good. I love your hair. Her teeth. Who spends time to look at somebody's teeth? But he did. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shown and freshly washed. Did you get that? Freshly washed. And he says, your smile is flawless. Each teeth matches the other. What I'm trying to get you to see is he is complimenting in every dimension of her human anatomy. Her eyes, her hair, her teeth. Look at verse 3. Her lips are like scarlet ribbons your mouth is inviting scarlet ribbon this is the only time that this word is used is used again in Joshua as Joshua comes through town where Rahab is and Rahab is instructed if you want the deaf angel to pass over your house hang this scarlet thread in your window and when the uh, deaf angel comes or when the soldiers come through town to create death they pass over her house because the scarlet thread is hanging in the window the scarlet thread means redemption that means that you'll be saved in spite of who you are and Rahab's life was not the best of a life and yet Rahab got grace and mercy through Joshua when she hung the scarlet thread because the angel or the deaf, or the deaf angel in terms of the soldiers passed over. This woman should not be where she is because she is not worthy status-wise to be in such state. And that's why no matter where you are, you should be grateful to God that God gave you the strength and the ability to be where you are and be grateful to also recognize you're not all that you're going to be and yet the, far, the window is far open for you to see and anticipate what the future lies ahead. And here it is. He looks at her and tells her, your lips are like redemption to me. In other words, when I kiss you, I leave earth and go to another dimension in life. Now, for y'all that's kind of finding that hard to understand, your kisses ought to be that sweet. That means you got to work at it. See, that's how I know y'all so religious. You're trying to act like, and you know you love somebody to kiss all on you and to hug all on you and to squeeze all on you and to make you feel important. Why we try to act otherwise? I don't want, listen, I want you to know, I won't. And I, 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 I got a woman who loves me. Yeah. And my, and my baby loved me to the fullest. 
accepts me with all my flaws and appreciates me for who I am. And I ain't looking nowhere. I ain't got nowhere else to look. Don't I got, you can see what I got all the woman I need right there in Miss Murphy. And, and when I slobber all of them little lips, yep, they are, and they take me to another whole diamond. That's what that verse says. And part of our problem is because don't nobody slobber on us, we can't appreciate when somebody starts talking like this. Preach, Pastor Murphy. I am. I'm doing the best that I can. Look what he says. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranate behind the veil. Cheeks. But listen, I can't see how flourished they are because the veil, the veil prohibits my vision. Great. That creates pursuant. Are you willing to pay the price to get to where she is? He says, I am. He says, you look so good. Your cheeks are rosy like promagant, like promagante, and he says, your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with a thousand heroes and shields of a thousand heroes. That simply means, he's saying, when I look at your neck, I see nothing but strength. And maybe he's saying, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm so glad that I know that I got you to be my strength with me when I travel through a dark moment in life. There it is right there. It's right there in the text. And I tell you all the time, what good is it being in a relationship with a person if they don't make contribution to you? If all they are doing is withdrawing, eventually you're going to come up zero. And there he is. He looked at her and he said, baby, listen, the journey that I've had, Music Soul Child says, when I'm not in your presence, you are deeply on my mind. He's telling her, when you are not in my presence, I can think of the strength of how tall and powerful your neck is. And I'm grateful you are in my corner. So now the question is, when's the last time, brothers, we told our sisters, thank you for being in my corner? When's the last time we paid her a compliment to tell her how beautiful she is, whether it's her eyes, whether it's her hair, whether it's her hair or not her hair, whomever hair it is, just tell her how beautiful she is. Doesn't matter. It's connected to her, just tell her how beautiful she is. And don't feel bad, because brothers, we got extra hair too. We, we toupee, as they called it. But when's the last time we've been complimentary? Look what he says in verse 5. All you conservative Christians, hold your seat now. Put your seatbelt on because he's going to mention a word that I'm sure is going to drive us crazy. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lily. Translation, they look so beautiful and they are so perky. I, I, they just look like gazelles jumping through the lilies. I'm just telling you what the text says. I told you the Song of Solomon is very sensual, but we skip over it because we don't think it should be spoken of in church. How can you be true to preaching if you don't preach through the whole text? So this is a part of the text. Your breasts, my love, 
are exciting to me. That's what he's saying. When's, when's the last time, husband, you told your wife how beautiful her breasts were? I, boy, I can hear you now. I can't believe he actually said that in church. I sure did. Because I tell you why. Brother, if you think that you're the only one looking at your wife's breasts, you better get you a new set of lenses to see your wife through because somebody else is looking where you won't look and you better learn to tell her how good she looks because if you don't, she'll become a candidate for vulnerability. And when she becomes a candidate for vulnerability, when someone starts saying those sweet things to her, it won't be long. Somebody been sleeping in my bed. I'm just telling you. Here it is right here in the text. But that's not it. Look, look, look closely at verse 11. He says, your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Now watch the progression. Because in verse 1, he calls her my darling. But in verse 7, and here in verse 11, he calls her my bride. Because he's saying to her, as he's trying to say to us, you should be growing in your relationship. He's saying, don't take for granted of who the person is. Don't listen. I told him this morning, I'll tell you, if it's 40 years later, when you first met her, if you were opening up the door 40 years ago, she probably wants you to open up the door again now, 40 years later. If you were pushing in the pulling out the chair and pushing in the chair 25 years ago, 25 years later, she still wants you to do the same thing. If you were telling her how fine and good looking she is and how you couldn't live without her, calling her every chance you get, 30 years later she wants you to do the same thing. Why? Because she needs the reassurance not only of the compliment but the recognition of the character that she is someone on the inside that you found to be loving and adoring. That's your bride and you don't want to be without her. So you reassure her. So he says her lips are sweet as nectar. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Now look at that. What you doing under her tongue? Because he's saying that you should be so into the person that you're in love with that you even know what's happening underneath her tongue. But Deacon Bazemore, this ain't it. This ain't the good one, Deacon. Got to take you to verse 13. In verse 13, it will start out in some of your versions by saying, your plants or your branches. But in the New Living Translation to which I'm reading out of, it says, your thigh. Now, I'm going to read it for you and watch your mind go to work. Your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates 
with rare spices, henna with nard, nard with saffron, fragrance camelus, and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrhs, and alloys, and every other lovely spice. Now, I'm going to let that marinate just for 10 seconds. Then, Mary, I'm going to tell you what he means. He means that when I look at her female reproductive area, I am overwhelmingly excited because it's just that good. There it is right there. Look what it says. Sheltered between your thighs is a paradise. There it is. I can't believe he said that in church. That's exactly what the text says. Look at it. Sheltered a paradise. I'm trying to tell you, sexual education is right here in Scripture. That's crazy, ain't it? Pastor, how in the world would you mention that in the pulpit on Sunday morning and we got young people in the congregation? Watch this. I'll tell you why I said it. Look at verse 15, if you will. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountain. Hold that verse and back up. Back up to verse 9. You have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes with a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love wine, your perfume more fragrant than spices. As I told him this morning, that just simply means that he would rather drink of her than wine because when he drinks of her, he won't get a hangover. But when he drinks of wine, he will. And that just simply means her, her love is intoxicating, but not intoxicating enough to push him over the edge, but enough to keep him attractive to know that he want to come back to this living stream again. So remember, the language is metaphorical. But, but here is what I really wanted you to see, verse 12. You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. I don't like that verse in this translation. I like the NIV, which talks about her paradise being locked up. That means that her body is under lock and key and only open by way of her own permission. So if I wanted to address this text, again, as I said this morning, from a sociological perspective, I would talk about how she has the power to decide who comes in and out of her life physically. She is contending that don't rape me. When you rape me, you violate my choice. But instead, the only way, go back to my R&B individual, the only way you can have this paradise is that you have to purchase it by way of marriage because I got it under lock and key, which is a warning. Don't let everybody have what you have that's precious to you. 
So brothers, we should teach our daughters to guard your body very carefully. Brothers, we should teach our sons, don't violate where someone else does not have you to be. Respect that sacred space of her anatomy. Because this text says she's so beautiful that we should adore her with such respect and honor that on his wedding day, he says, I cannot wait to be consummated as your husband and you as my bride. That's what verse 16 means. He calls metaphorically the winds from the north and the south and the east and the west. He is really saying, God, anoint, baptize this moment. And no matter what relationship we are a part of, we should invite the Lord in that he might breathe on us afresh with his spirit. See that? See in that verse 16, he says, blow on me. Blow on us to a point where it will spread its fragrance all around. And then the invitation goes out. Come into my garden. Look at that. Come into my garden, my love, and taste its finest I'm going to leave you hanging just a little bit because I probably told you too much that I shouldn't have told you. But listen to what it says. Come taste these glorious fruits. It's the invitation to consummate on the marital night. Everybody knows it ain't no secret. Don't act like you don't know that. When folk get married, the marital night is the night that they have sex. Amen. There y'all go, I heard you soft, amen, trying to be religious. Listen, let's just come on, be truthful. You know that's what happens. Sometimes it even happened before that night, so let's, let, let's just be real. He's trying to tell us that that night, here's the reason why there is an argumentative perspective in the Bible for virginity. So that that night becomes so special, A, you don't know what to expect. But B, the expectation yet should be entering to the mysterion and yet it's so exciting that it will blow you away. That's what virginity is about. Preserving for the one special individual. Now life doesn't work out that way all the time. That's just not how things always work. But when you can, it, it pays to do that. If you can't, it's not the end of the world. Uh, you're not going to fall out of grace. You're not going to fall to pieces. That's why we have repentance. So that we can come back and say on this night, Lord, although I've been here before, may this night be special. And God is a God of restoration. He can restore back what you think is so broken. So let me close with this story. When Lazarus has died, uh, the sisters are, are strongly disturbed that Jesus didn't come when he, they thought he should have came. He doesn't show up when they want him to. In fact, when the message comes to Jesus that Lazarus has died, he looks at the disciples and the disciples says, we need to go now. And Jesus says, nope, not right now. They are wondering, what do you mean not right now? Haven't you, 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 did you hear the message? I heard it. I heard it very clearly. We're not going to move right now. Amazingly, I would argue, Lazarus is not dead at the moment. He's only asleep. Jesus waits 
until he's fully dead. Because what happens is, if Jesus comes while he's only asleep, no one can claim that Jesus can bring back from the dead. But if he shows up when he's fully dead, then Jesus can show you how whatever has died in your life, if you trust me, I can bring it back to life. And so he shows up. And the sister says, oh, now you show up. If you had been here a few days earlier, my brother would have died. And Jesus says, I know. But when you talk about death, you are looking at what death can meet in terms of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Mary begins to, Martha begins to throw dialogue. Jesus says, forget all that, roll the stone away. Just roll the stone away. The skeptics say, why roll the stone away? He's been in there three days. He's going to stink like I don't know what. Roll the stone away. Because I'm celebrating here. Now watch, I told you Solomon says you should compliment. You should, you should uh, recognize the character and then you should celebrate who they are. I'm celebrating now as he's going to with his wife because thank goodness God celebrates me even when I've been stinking for the last several days. Uh-huh, and I'm not the only one who's been stinking for the last several days either. You should be celebrating that God loves us in the midst of our death mode. I know he's stinking, but roll the stone away. And when he rolls the stone away, he just sits there and calls Lazarus by name. And when he calls her by name, calls him by name, he comes forth out the grave. Hey, have you noticed something in the text? In the Song of Solomon, this woman is never given the name. All she is called is a Shulamite woman. Now, what that does for us hermeneutically is gives us a chance to put our name in that spot. So when it's not identified, I can put my name there. And even though Jesus calls Lazarus by name, we are all in this room this afternoon because he called us by name from a dead tomb. And when he came out, he looked at them and said, loose him from those grave clothes. That simply means once he forgives us, we still have to be released from all the clothes that we put on ourselves in terms of bondage. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that God is still taking clothes off of me there's still some bondages that I have and he's still pulling off some stuff but he says loose him and let him go and the text says that Lazarus came forth and began to shake off the grave clothes and I, and I don't have them all off but I got some of them off and I'm celebrating the fact that each and every day I'm taking off a little bit more and thankful to God he celebrates who I am in midst of the grave clothes that I find myself wearing and you should feel the same way as well and he consummates that by every day showing me his grace and his mercy what if God divorced us every time we failed him but what he does 
In 1 John 1, 8 and 9, he not only forgives us, but he forgives us for stuff we haven't even confessed yet. Now that's deep. For stuff that I haven't even confessed yet. Watch this. That's stuff I don't forgot that I did so long ago that if God would rewind the tape and brought it back to my presence, I could only say, oh, I forgot about that. But he wiped that clean. That's why I take from this text of Song of Solomon 4, she was not only beautiful, but the God we serve is beautiful. Because his grace is sufficient. And his mercy is everlasting. And his truth is life-changing. So let's leave here. Here's my charge to you. Let's leave here today being determined to pay compliments to people and not be critical. Secondly, let's leave here searching to find the good quality in people's personality and not judge them based off of their reputation. And third, let's celebrate the life that we have and the people that we share life with because you will never know how critical and important life is until death invades your space. And there are some of you in this room this morning, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister has gone into eternity and every day you miss them and you could think of what you would say to them if you saw them again. But we can't say it now because they can no longer hear us. You see the importance? This is why in marital relationships when you're dating, some of the stuff that we have differences of is not worth the drama that we engage in and it leads to domestic violence. Not worth it. This is why forgiveness is so preeminent. Learn to say, I forgive you. Let's move beyond this point. You'll be a lot happier. Your day will go a lot better. And you'll be more happy about coming home. Forgiveness is critical. Celebrating is critical. Character is Lord, thank you for being a God who gives us compliments. 